How did your family react to the video and then the fallout from the sting at the movie theater? My dad really didn't say a whole lot. He was just, I could see it in his face, he was pretty stressed out. But just like me, takes things internally. My mom is also not the type of person to lash out, but super understanding. So when I first brought all this to them, she didn't completely understand the magnitude of what was going on. So when I first brought it up to her, she was like, not necessarily really blew it off, but was like, oh, it'll, it'll sort itself out. But it didn't really take long for her to realize that this was serious. When law enforcement and university administrators get involved, you really don't have a choice. And when she did figure it out, Brent's mom became his closest ally. My mom was supportive and she was trying to be as helpful as she possibly could in that situation. When I went to the guidance counselor and kind of gone through all of this stuff, my mom agreed to go to the unofficial hearing that was on Ball State's campus. My mom and I were sitting in the guidance counselor's meeting room and it was like my mom and I against the world. What did all the girls' parents think of all this? This is coming from the investigator on the case, the detective. He told me that Emily's parents were absolutely furious. So the story that unfolded there was when the detective found out all this was going on and that this cell phone traced back to Emily. The police went over to Southside High School and pulled Emily and her sister out of class and expelled them as well. At this point in time, I remember when Emily had apologized to me probably a couple, three months after all this happened, she told me that she was completely distraught, bawling her eyes out, authoritative figures coming in, police, a detective coming in and basically pulling them out of school and calling their parents and bringing them to the school to have a meeting is obviously a huge deal. But through this whole thing, it was directed back at me. And how I understood it was that Emily's family was incredibly upset at me and was looking at suing me. But the detective talked them down from doing that. I can't imagine being a parent and finding out this was going on. You have these messages in your daughter's phone, and in that sense, the case is cut and dry. Brent is the person who has been sending these texts. He said things that no adult should ever say to a high schooler or middle schooler, and they've been responding. When I talked to the detective a little bit more about it, I found out that Emily had no idea that the Facebook profile had been created. She had no backstory as to what was actually happening and what their actual plans were. She didn't know that the video was going to be created. She only knew that she was texting a guy and trying to get him to, quote, fall in love. As an adult, as an authoritative figure in the band, Sean is telling her that this is just a practical joke. This is something that's funny. And so from a minor's perspective, She's going to do what her teachers are telling her to do. She was just following along with her teacher. 
I didn't want those girls to be expelled, but that was all out of my control. It was something that was decided overall by their school. That was not part of the plan. I was trying to take action on how to get this to go away so I could actually just move on and be able to get a master's in music. Zach and I did what we could for Brent, but that just wasn't very much. Zach helped him get the video down, and I mostly just listened and encouraged him. I had no knowledge of the court system at that time, no sense of the inner workings of trials like this one. Had you told me I would be a true crime podcaster one day, I wouldn't have even known what you were talking about. Remember, this was 2011. All to say, as much as we may have wanted to help, when it came to the legal process, in Ball State, it was really Brent and his mom first the world. I remember him sitting with her in the hearing. Sean, on the other hand, was well represented. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. and I think maybe the detective was there at the time, but they were trying to get down to the bottom of what they were going to do. Sean, Jacob was there. They had three or four other friend witnesses that were there trying to back them up. One of the guys' names was Ohm, and Dr. Jody Nagel was there as well. I don't remember if Joe was there or not, but he tended to always have his hands in Sean's affairs. Joe is the legendary Central Indiana band director at Southside High School. Sean had been his star pupil. To return to the Friday Night Lights analogy, Joe is sort of the coach Eric Taylor of this story, only with way more success and way more popularity. Listen to this rundown of Joe's experience and qualification as given by a local Missouri newspaper in the fall of 2021. Job was named director of bands of the six-time Indiana Summer Circuit Championship Marching Band at Muncie Southside High School. Concert organizations under his leadership have received over 75 First Division gold ratings at Indiana State School Music Association Finals. Job works as an adjudicator for the Indiana State School Music Association and was the coordinator for the Indiana State Fair Day contests for 18 years. I've heard Joe is a nice guy. He's an amazing musician and obviously a world-class teacher and band leader. I don't know what he was doing siding with Sean and Jacob throughout this process. I suppose he was just defending his friend as any of us would. In those early meetings with the school, everything was on the table. Brent was obviously open to prosecution, but so were Sean and Jacob. I asked Brent about the focus of that first meeting. The aftermath of all of this and trying to figure out the ramifications that were going to happen, whether they're going to let them stay or if they're going to expel them or if Sean and Jacob are going to be charged with something. Sean in particular being an authoritative role and soliciting a minor to do this kind of thing to somebody. The fact that all of these allegations and things that were being said by other people and just drama. It was a big question of whether or not I was going to be expelled as well. My reputation at the school was completely destroyed because of that video. One of the very many odd things in this case is that while his life was derailed, Brent was acquitted in every legal and institutional sense. I'd love to walk you through the investigative drama, but there wasn't much. It was open and shut. There was never any evidence 
that Brant knew he was talking to underage girls, or that he was ever talking to anyone besides mythical fellow Wapahani alum Ashley Marie. I mean, they've got the camera on me saying that she's not real (laughs) and that they did it. So they confessed all of that, but finding out all these other pieces started by me going to the guidance counselor and being referred to the local detective that was on campus. And it led to them finding out about Emily. And the detective told me that they had found out that Emily and her younger sister, who was 13 at the time, had been exchanging these messages back and forth between me on their personal cell phones. And so they were the ones actually messaging me and developing the romantic relationship. The university did their diligence, and ultimately, it was Sean and Jacob who were suspended for one year from campus housing. They had bragged about their involvement from the beginning, having filmed this admission back in the movie theater, then posting it online. But while Brent may have won in a legal sense, he lost pretty much everything else. I asked him who, apart from Zach and I, had been in any way supportive throughout this time. I had nobody that was really advocating for me or supporting me outside of my mom. It was a very dark, lonely year on top of trying to complete my schooling. She was a help, but not knowing social media, being ignorant to the internal stuff of what actually happened, I was on this path by myself. I really didn't date, didn't talk to anybody. I shut myself in a hole for nearly two and a half years. I just straight up really didn't talk to anybody outside of my family and my roommates. Zach, which is my other roommate, one of his friends at the time, Kevin, had come into the picture. Kevin was that guy that got me over all of this. He got me out, he got me doing things, convinced me to start having parties at the house to bring friends in again. I'd say for a close two years, I was just, didn't know what I was doing. I was lost and afraid to talk to people, especially online. Honestly, up until a year ago, I haven't touched a dating website. I had my heyday of dating websites when I was in college, trying to figure them out, but I haven't touched them since because of that situation. And it wasn't just his social life that suffered. Academically, he began to struggle. When I was dealing with the legal ramifications and the internal stress and honestly ripped to shreds of the fact that I thought I was in love and found out that it was just fake. All of these emotions, all of these things that were bottled up inside was hindering my performance at school. And it was making it incredibly difficult to focus on my program. And by the time it was all said and done, There was a couple different factors that made it, so I ended up with a general studies degree. I never actually received my 
bachelor's in music composition. In the months following the video, Brent fell behind at Ball State, and his application to retake a required assessment was rejected. Due to a quirk in the academic calendar, Brent would need to stick around for another two years for the last six credits of his composition degree. Following the lack of departmental support, following the sting, and the expulsion of another, more popular student, he chose instead to take a general studies degree and leave the university. I was struggling and I just gave up. I gave up on my goal of getting my bachelor's in music. I was so frustrated and so alone and so just in a dark place that I just wanted to be done. I was tired of the situation and so I never actually finished the degree. And then when I got out of school, when I finally just said, this is it, I'm just getting my general studies, I thought maybe I could go back and get my master's in music. I had no support from any of the faculty and every place that I applied, I didn't get in. In order to get a master's degree in composition, especially in revered schools, schools that have either film score programs, which is what I was looking at, like USC, UCLA, Berkeley School of Music. My dream was to get a master's in film score composing on the Valencia, Spain campus through Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Unable to get any kind of referral from his former professors at Ball State, Brent turned to his high school band director for the next best thing. And when you're dealing with these high-profile, very competitive schools, that's just not going to cut it. On one level, it makes a lot of sense that Ball State would be reluctant to refer someone who failed to finish their program. They don't have any obligation to Brent in this situation, because technically, he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. But the odd thing is, Sean, who was now expelled from Ball State, had left the university on arguably worse terms than Brent, did receive a recommendation, and soon was enrolled at nearby Butler University, where he would complete his degree that following year. When you go to school for music, you get appointed a instructor, a private instructor that you study with over the course of your collegiate career. You're always working with a professor of music on a one-on-one basis. And so Sean and I were working directly with Dr. Nagel, which was at that point in time, their top composition instructor at Ball State. So it put him right in the middle of all this. When I finally was done with school, I tried to apply for master's programs. I couldn't get any letters of recommendation because of the drama that occurred. I didn't grow up in a musical family. They supported me in music and what I was doing as a musician and as a composer, but I didn't have a group of people who were trying to build me up in the music community. I didn't have that. Sean had one of the top band directors in the state rooting for him. He had Dr. Nagel, who was really close friends with Joe, and that relationship was tight, along with these other band directors around the state. From the time of his graduation, and in some ways from that afternoon at the theater, Brent was more or less flying solo. That's a hard thing to do at the age of 22 in any profession. But in a field as small and network-dependent as film score composition, 
your odds are close to nil. So, he went to work in the family vacuum shop instead, before moving to California in an attempt to make it in the music industry on his own. I tried my stint out in California. When I found out that I wasn't going to get a bachelor's degree, I was struggling. I was not able to keep a job. So, so I started my first company doing digital mock-ups of composers' music with sample libraries. I had partnered with a company out in New York called Revell Virtual Studios. The company ended up going under because of the last 10 years. Those sample libraries have all become subscription services. I ran out of money, didn't have a car, so I literally bought a bicycle and was trying to bike everywhere in uh, Los Angeles with all these highways and stuff. It made it really difficult to do. I lasted about a year and a half and had to move back. He returned to the vacuum shop, where he worked up until the past year. A few months after the catfishing incident and before the lawsuit, Sean reached out and apologized in a long letter. Brent has heard from him once since. So a few months after this happened, Sean actually wrote a letter to me and dropped it off at my mailbox. And he had made references to my all-time favorite score, John Powell's How to Train Your Dragon. He was just kind of reminiscing back on the days where we used to listen to that. He had apologized, but I never responded to him. A couple years went by, and I had asked him if he wanted to meet for coffee. And we did. I remember sitting on like a park bench. I was excited because he he was like, yeah, I'm working at a studio. I'm working on some stuff right now. I'll get you into the session tomorrow if you want. And then that was the extent of it. That afternoon in late 2014 is the last time the two of them spoke. Brent waited the following day for directions to the studio and the days that followed that and eventually flew back to Indiana to rebuild his life. Emily, too, reached out with a brief series of texts, only one of which I'll share. She said, quote, What I did was wrong. I wouldn't like if someone did to me what I did to you, and I'm sorry. But as Brent said earlier, Emily was just a kid. She was doing what her teacher told her to do. Her younger sister was doing the same. The last time they spoke, Sean had been apologetic. Jacob has not reached out. But between 2012 and 2013, they filed a lawsuit together against the president of Ball State University. Included in the lawsuit were the vice president for student affairs and the director of the Office of Student Rights and Community. Their argument, and I'm not making this up, was that none of the things that they did to Brent happened on campus. They claimed the university violated the First Amendment and that this was a matter of free speech outside of Ball State jurisdiction. They alleged, and I'm reading from their filing here, that as a result of the actions of Michael Gillian, the University Director of Student Rights and Community Standards, they had, quote, suffered damages, including but not limited to a substantial delay in completing their educations, increased tuition, loss of employment, emotional distress, embarrassment, humiliation, and damage to their personal and academic reputations. That last one especially just left me speechless. Not only did they claim their harassment of Brent as the right of all American citizens, 
they also basically made a list of everything they did to Brent and claimed it for themselves. This trial would go down as the first time in history that the word catfishing was ever used by a federal judge in an American courtroom. Judge Jane Magnus Stinson used the term multiple times describing Sean and Jacob's behavior. The case would go on to be featured in a textbook called Cyberbullying and Social Media Within Educational Institutions. According to the student's filing, quote, While the sandwich prank may be labeled as irksome, annoying, irritating, or even mean, it was impossible to say with certainty that this sort of thing was officially objectionable or wrong. In their words, it was a, quote, close call. The judge repeatedly disagreed. She criticized the students, quote, ever-changing and often unsupported arguments. She said they were bullies, and quote, presented a serious threat to Brent's well-being. In their complaint, the students asked for all references to this incident be removed from their student records, which the judge found somewhat funny. She responded by saying, The court sees some irony in the student's request that all references to this incident be removed from their academic record. The students have made the details of the incident public by filing this lawsuit, so any interest they may assert in keeping the details private is questionable. Throughout the trial, due to humiliation that Brent had already endured, Judge Jane Magnus Stinson refused to use his name. He is known in her opinion as simply the target. She says in this opinion, Indeed, the type of scheme the students designed and carried out was featured in a 2010 movie called Catfish, and has become the subject of a reality television show with the same name which airs on MTV. Catfishing is a term used to describe the phenomenon of internet predators that fabricate online identities and entire social circles to trick people into emotional-slash-romantic relationships over a long period of time. Sean and Jacob continually tried to deflect the court's attention onto what they alleged was Brent's pursuit of an underage girl. The judge responded, The court finds Ball State's treatment of these allegations against the target wholly irrelevant to its handling of the allegations against the students, and will not consider or discuss it here. In any event, the evidence indicates that the target did not believe Ashley was underage. And I will say that on the night Brent came into the kitchen, looking like a member of his family had died, I went through his phone and all of his Facebook messages with Ashley, with him sitting beside me, to confirm his story that he did not know her age. I needed to know whose side I should be on. I found nothing that would suggest that she was any younger than the two of us, then in our early 20s. The photos in the Facebook account were in fact of Emily, who was 16. I won't be sharing those photos because we're not revealing her identity, but I would have guessed late 20s. Looking at them now, I would say the same, but ultimately, the problem for Sean and Jacob and their rather bold lawsuit against the highest ranking members of a public university was that when they enrolled at Ball State University, they signed a code of student rights and responsibilities, as all students are required to do. It will probably not surprise you to know that harassing and publicly humiliating classmates 
as well as soliciting minors for romantic relationships, are both in breach of that agreement. I've read a lot of court documents, and this is one of the more lopsided judgments I've ever seen. It was a relative beatdown in non-legal terms. The judge basically took all their arguments and claims that they were the real victims, crumbled them up, and threw them in the trash. But the damage was done. That dispute was between Sean, Jacob, and Ball State University, and didn't affect Brent's life at all. He wouldn't ever hear of the lawsuit until many years later, up until last month actually, when we decided to do this series. Sean would go on to finish his undergraduate degree in composition at nearby Butler University before receiving a graduate certificate in scoring for motion pictures and television at the University of Southern California. Since 2011, he has been scoring television and film and now has 18 professional credits on his IMDb page. Brent went home to work in the family vacuum shop near Muncie, Indiana, following his dead-end venture out west. He was still working there as of last fall, which is when we hired him. He is now our full-time audio engineer. Thank you.